Hello and welcome to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcast. I'm Dr. Jamie Newman, a hospitalist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. This is the final episode of a special three-part series on troponins. Today's podcast is going to focus on inpatient care. Physicians looking to claim CME credit for listening to the series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash troponinpc and register. With me today for our final episode is Dr. Alan Jaffe. Dr. Jaffe is an active cardiologist working with patients with ischemic heart disease and also serves as a consultant in laboratory medicine and pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Welcome back, Dr. Jaffe. Thank you, Jamie. My pleasure to be here. Happy to have you. All right. Maybe to start off with, we've talked about it in our previous podcast, but you could give us a quick overview of the new fifth-generation troponin assay. Certainly. Well, the new fifth-generation cardiac troponin T assay, which is what we're using here, is about five-fold more sensitive than previous assays. The consequence, as we talked about last time, is that it's going to detect a substantial increase in the number of elevated values. There's a good and a bad about that. The good part about that is that we're now understanding that there are a large number of disease entities in which the heart is involved that we weren't aware of in the past. And what we're going to need to do eventually, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about inpatient and some of the outpatient care, is to begin to lever that to figure out better how what the pathophysiology is, and with that, how we treat individuals better. The downside, obviously, is that now we're sorting a larger number of elevated values, which means that the screening and evaluation of patients with acute ischemic heart disease, which is what biomarkers have heretofore been used almost exclusively for, becomes a little bit more challenging, and one needs to be a little bit more thoughtful about how one administers both the diagnosis and thinks about the clinical care of those patients. So really what you're saying is it's not just about diagnosing ischemia, but it's also using it to understand risk and benefit for patients. I think in the long run, that's that's the future because there are lots of areas here, and some of them we'll talk about subsequently, where there is a tremendous opportunity for us to improve the care of our patients. Excellent. So we, our, our second episode, we talked about patients and who needs to be admitted to the hospital from the emergency department. Now we're looking at, at it from the perspective of patients who, who have been admitted to the hospital. So for the cl- clinician, whether they're a cardiologist, a hospitalist, or other practitioner in the hospital, how should they manage patients with ACS and use the, uh, the new high-sensitivity assay in, in making them? treatment decision. Maybe the simplest way to to talk about this is to divide ACS into STEMI, non-STEMI, and then talk a little bit about unstable angina. For STEMI, as you're well aware, the diagnosis is made by clinical history and electrocardiogram almost exclusively. That doesn't mean that troponin doesn't have a role in documenting and after the interventions that occur that STEMI has occurred that acute myocardial infarction is present within substantial elevations, and they can be helpful in guiding therapy by allowing people to both evaluate for recurrent infarction by looking at a pattern that has fallen and then re-rises, using similar criteria to what we've suggested in the emergency room. That is to say, a change in values of 10 or greater. And also, an absolute value 
taken at 48 or 72 hours. And I would note that most of our STEMI patients are out of the hospital by 72 hours, is a pretty good surrogate for infarct size to allow clinicians to have the feel for that. So for STEMI, it's fairly simple. Non-STEMI gets a little more complex. As, as you well know, in order to make the diagnosis of acute myocardial infarction, one needs to have a diagnosis of acute myocardial injury, and that's where troponin is helpful. Either a very high value for troponin, and we've put our stake in the ground at 100 nanograms per liter, because that has very high predictive accuracy, with the possible exception of some renal failure patients, uh, for diagnosing acute myocardial injury, that or an increasing pattern. So you need to have that first. But you also, in addition, need to have the clinical story that allows you to make that diagnosis. Now, often in the emergency room, it's fairly straightforward because there's symptoms or electrocardiographic changes. Sometimes when imaging is, is obtained for a variety of reasons, you can see new regional wall motion abnormalities. But I would point out that there are also some subtle circumstances where this would occur. Diabetics present atypically, sometimes even silently, quote unquote. I would say more unrecognized than silent. Mm -hmm. The elderly often don't have chest discomfort when they come in. And women often present with atypical signs and symptoms as well. In addition, there's another large group, and that's the critically ill as well who may also have supply-demand imbalance and what we call a type 2 MI to consider. And I know we're going to talk about those later. So the first thing that needs to happen diagnostically is you need to have the pattern of acute myocardial injury. But then the clinician needs to look carefully to see whether or not the substrate for that acute myocardial injury is acute ischemic heart disease. Because, as we talked about initially, because of the sensitivity of this assay, there are going to be a lot of circumstances, direct toxins, such as chemotherapy, patients who have myocarditis, catecholamines will cause minor elevations in troponin, so that one needs to be careful. And in some instances, it may not be overt. In some instances, one may need to take the clinical circumstance. So, for example... A diabetic would unexplained ketoacidosis who seems to be in heart failure. Could that be? And think about it from that perspective. Finally, as we talked about the first time, it's important, is that there's this group that is hard to triage, who have an elevated troponin that stays elevated over the short term. That could be a patient with a myocardial infarction who's presenting late after the onset because the downslope of the time concentration curve is much slower than the upslope. Alternatively, that could be a patient with structural heart disease alone mm -hmm. who's having some other clinical symptoms or unstable angina. And although I believe if we had everybody and the timing perfect 
so that everybody presented a couple of hours after the onset of their symptoms that we would see with the high sensitivity assays a signal in almost everyone. The reality is that our timing isn't always perfect. People come in late, they come in early. So that we need to be careful and circumspect because there will be some of those people. And I guess the most important message is that high sensitivity is going to insist that good clinicians continue and actually augment their level of clinical sophistication in order to use this assay properly. I think that's a really important point. Uh, we keep on emphasizing the fact that you can't make management decisions just based on a blood test alone, especially when you're talking about a test that's more sensitive than you previously used and just becoming dependent on that test for making your decision takes the clinical scenario out of the picture. Absolutely, and, and, and once you, but once you've made the diagnosis, there's another component to this that we should at least mention to our clinicians. And it's the concept of, that I call anchor values. Mm -hmm. Previous studies have suggested that patients who have ACS, who have an elevated troponin utilizing not high sensitivity, but more conventional assays, benefit as a group from an invasive strategy an aggressive anticoagulation, and going to the cath lab. Now, <clears throat> that's not mandated for every single patient, and in point of fact, as someone who participated in the ACCAHA Unstable Angina Guidelines and non-STEMI guidelines, I can tell you that it's perfectly okay to individualize to some extent. With high-sensitivity troponin, however, we don't have the clinical studies that say Every time you have acute myocardial injury, even of an ischemic etiology, that you should go to the cath lab. And the reason for that is that as we've gotten more sensitive, we're unmasking a variety of additional pathologies. For example, Minoka, which is often seen in women who have minimal coronary artery disease. They don't have a clear culprit lesion. There are a variety of clinical syndromes then that are related to supply demand. An individual who may have uh, a low hemoglobin and have coronary disease, who because they have tachycardia may have an imbalance between myocardial supply and demand. That group of patients, which are now subtly detected, is now part of our group. And all, and those people may not need to go to the cath lab. So the person who's anemic needs to be transfused, not to go to the cath lab to have additional interventions. So if indeed the value of the troponin is above the level where the previous assay was showed at elevation, so for our assay it would be a value of 30, which comports to a previous value of 0.01, which was the 99th percentile, then those patients, at least as a group, should be considered to go to the cath lab for an invasive strategy. The values that are below that for women between 10 and 30, for men <clears throat> between 15 and 30, need to be individualized because they're smaller events and therefore they're more likely to be of these sort of type 2 MIs. And again, this is a clinical judgment that needs to be made that I think our clinicians need to think about on an individual basis. Uh, that's great. One of the questions that came up in Rochester was 
what patients need to be monitored. There's the decision to put a patient on a monitored bed, we hope is made on clinical criteria, but it often is not the case, unfortunately. So which patients uh, need to be monitored or not is a big question. And what about the patient with the isolated high troponin, for instance, that's admitted with pneumonia, but a troponin is ordered and comes back in the mildly elevated range, 30 or 35, do they need to, and has no evidence of a delta, so there doesn't appear to be a change, but um, also what needs to be hospitalized, do they need to be on a monitored bed or not? Well, several years ago with one of the individuals who was a chief resident and now is one of our cardiology fellows, we decided to look at this using the conventional assay, albeit. And so we looked at patients who were admitted to telemetry. We excluded those who had an absolute indication, those who had had sudden cardiac death, who were in VT storm, whose ICDs were firing, and simply said, if you have an elevated troponin and you go to telemetry for that reason, and, and for most of those people, it was because there was some suspicion of an acute coronary syndrome and ask the question, what's the frequency of arrhythmias? In addition, what type of arrhythmias were they? Are they malignant ventricular arrhythmias that we need to take seriously, or are they something else? Mm -hmm. And so when we did that over a year's period of time and we called that out, several things were apparent. The first is that the frequency of arrhythmias was extraordinarily low. Patients who had ischemic heart disease who really had the diagnosis, because what we saw was about 50% of those individuals who were admitted with a possible ACS diagnosis had that at discharge. Those individuals had a few more arrhythmias, but not many. We're talking about 25, 30% at most. But the arrhythmias were quite benign. There were very few, I think there was only one patient out of 500 who had ventricular tachycardia. There were, the vast majority of these were bradyarrhythmias or bradycardia or atrial fibrillation that was known. And as a matter of fact, when one looked and asked the question, what therapy was initiated, only about 5 to 6% of those patients required a change in treatment. And almost invariably, it was changing the beta blocker dose because they were a little more bradycardic than people wanted, or increasing the beta blocker dose because their atrial fibrillation was a little bit faster. So it was quite clear that <clears throat> the frequency of the sorts of arrhythmias that we really would like to use telemetry for is quite low. And so I think it's very clear that if you have an elevated troponin alone, unless there's something else clearly going on, and, and ACS might be one of those things, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, that those patients don't deserve telemetry because they don't have the frequency of arrhythmias that would lead you to need to treat them. So, in essence, that's a patient with an elevated troponin in and of itself does not need to be on a monitor if they have significant hyperkalemia, atrial fibrillation with a significantly rapid ventricular rate or other reasons to be on a monitor, aside from the troponin, it would be appropriate, but the troponin in and of itself is not a monitor. Well, indication. that's what our data would suggest, and, and as 
Also, uh, I think what the ACCHA telemetry guidelines are moving toward, the one caveat that still remains in the uh, standards and guidelines is that if you have definite acute coronary syndrome, there still is the suggestion that monitoring may be appropriate. I would argue, even from, from our experience, that even that's a little bit of a stretch, but at least for now, if you have definite ACS, that's probably still an indicator for telemetry. There's one other piece of information that I think we need to build out, <clears throat> and it was a rel and because our study was relatively small, uh, we couldn't build it out as, as well as we wanted. And that was the higher the troponin, the larger the frequency of arrhythmias. And that's probably still something to keep in mind, that if one has ACS, in particularly with a very high troponin, even with or without a rising pattern of uh, values, that those patients probably should have telemetry. All right. So let's move on to another topic. We talked a lot at length about how to uh, use the new assay in, in emergency department patients. What about the patient who's hospitalized and develops chest pain? Is there anything different in that management, or is it fairly similar? Well, there's some similar principles, but there are going to be a lot of difference in terms of details. The first thing is that often the timing is a little less pristine. Uh, the last patient that I was called about when I was in the CCU the nurses had noted ST segment change on the monitor, got an electrocardiogram. <clears throat> the patient, because that particular patient was a post-op patient, had, had no symptoms whatsoever. So the, the, one of the tensions here is that if you don't know the timing, it's very hard to know where on the time concentration curve one is with troponin. In the ideal world, you'd use the exact same protocols, which is to say if you had a very low value <clears throat> on admission and you then had no, no change over a short period of time, that clearly is a reasonable rule out, and it probably still is, but you might need to go longer given the onset of symptoms may not be known. The value of 100, and the reason we developed that value was we looked at our data <clears throat> that we published previously on critically ill individuals. And it seemed that that value still gave one a pretty good signal that acute myocardial injury was present, and it optimized, as a matter of fact, it had almost 100% specificity for either myocarditis or acute myocardial infarction for ED-related patients. So I think when the value is as high as 100, that still is a good measure of acute cardiac injury. And then one still wants to look at the rise and or fall. And for these patients, a lot more of them may well be on the downslope, depending upon what the clinical circumstance is and how they're seen. Sure, they may not have been on a monitored bed. No one saw the ST change. They're post-operative. They're on had a hip fracture, and they're on pain meds, et cetera. Those so, so I think that there's going to be a different sort of evaluation necessary, and I would argue as well, in, in particularly in critically ill patients, and we'll talk about this in the surgical patients as well, uh, something that I mentioned earlier on about the setting. Sometimes you just don't know what really happened 
So going back fastidiously over the record and saying, well, did this patient get severely hypotensive? Were they really tachycardic? Were they severely anemic? Might well be a way to give one a clinical hint that something is going on that might lead to an acute chest pain syndrome or even uh, an acute ischemic syndrome, whether it's unstable angina or acute myocardial infarction. Well, that's great. So you gave us a good segue into surgical patients for the next segment of this discussion. Let's talk about the surgical patients that's not having cardiac surgery, because uh, presumably patients having cardiac surgery, we know something's going on from a myocardial standpoint, either operatively or otherwise. So let's focus on the non-cardiac surgical patients. What should we be thinking about from that standpoint? Well, well the first thing to say, and this is an emerging area, so that I think over time this area is going to change substantially in terms of our understanding. But the first thing to say is epidemiologically we know that this is one of the most common causes of death in surgical patients. How big a problem it was wasn't clear until just recently with some of the more recent studies. It's also one of the most common causes of readmission after surgery. So it's clearly a major problem. And in previous studies done <clears throat> with 12-lead continuous Holter monitors, it's clear that a large percentage of these events seem to be associated with ST segment change and elevated troponins. If you look at those older studies, then you find that often the ST segment change was preceded by something that altered the supply-demand imbalance. Anemia, tachycardia, hypertension, hypotension. So that fits the rubric of a type 2 MI epidemiologically. Now, there's some caution necessary here because if one looks at the autopsy table and says, what about those post-operative patients who died, about 50% of them have type 2 events and about 50% have plaque rupture events, type 1 MIs. So I think that the reality here is that the vast majority of what we're going to see post-operatively will be type 2 myocardial infarctions, a smattering of pulmonary emboli and some, some direct toxicity from sepsis and catecholamines that there is a small but nasty proportion of these individuals who have type 1 events, acute plaque rupture events, who really would benefit from intervention. Probably it's best to make that diagnosis pre-autopsy, I would say. It would be best to make that diagnosis pre-autopsy. You're correct. And one of the problems of all of these studies is that <clears throat> when you start looking, they're highly selected patients that are going through them. But troponin gives us, I think, a window, maybe not in the short term to know exactly what to do, but in the long term about how to deal with these patients. The original studies, and the first study was called Vision 1, <clears throat> used conventional troponin, showed that having an elevated troponin, even a modest one, was associated with a substantial increase in 30-day mortality. So the question is, what did those mean? Because unfortunately, in Vision 1, they didn't have a baseline. So 
Were they structural? Some of them no doubt were. Some of those patients coming in had heart failure, had LVH, and lots of the other things that can cause proponents to be elevated. Nonetheless, you're at increased risk if you have underlying structural heart disease. Some of them may have been the supply-demand imbalance sorts of things with anemia and tachycardia. Some of them may be related to a variety of things that the surgeons and anesthesiologists do to maintain their, their surgeries, catecholamines, volume expansion, all of which proteolizes and causes troponin release. And some of them do these nasty other events. And obviously some are multifactorial. Mm -hmm. So what Vision 2 did that was, I think, very important was that it obtained baseline samples on 7,000 of the 15,000 participants. And there are two very clear messages here. One is that the higher your troponin is after surgery, in absolute terms, the worse off you are, irrespective of cause. But those individuals who had a rising pattern, and the larger the rise, were at accentuated risk. That's the group that actually is the most important group. Because if you have a very high value due to structural heart disease and it's not rising, there's not much you can do postoperatively other than be aware of it and manage it. Mm -hmm. If it's due to toxicity due to the procedure or supply-demand imbalance, there's not much you can do. But if it's due to an acute plaque rupture event, you can at least consider doing that. And in point of fact, the data recently published suggesting that if you take such patients to the cath lab, they do better. Now, very highly selected group because they could tolerate going to the lab. They didn't have bleeding problems, on and on and on. But there's at least something to do if you could identify those patients. I guess it depends what kind of, certainly someone who's had a major surgery versus someone who's had an orthopedic there's a, surgery. There's a lot of clinical thought that needs to go into that before you do that, but the, the events that were talked about that led to these studies of intervention were made with conventional sorts of diagnostic uh, approaches. So they probably comport best to the very high troponin, very high delta group that we should at least think about. So I think eventually, for patients who are at risk, having baseline samples will turn out to be very important for the management of those patients. The downside of doing that that I think we have to be careful about as you're initiating new testing is that if people are not used to it, they may be upset, concerned, and cancel a variety of procedures that don't need to be canceled because they don't understand how to use the assay. So I think we have to move into that area slowly and carefully with appropriate education. There's an additional caveat to this that some people have advocated that is even more controversial, which is if you have a baseline elevation and you're at intermediate or high risk, should you monitor the patients postoperatively with troponin? The Logic for that is that if you look at most of these patients, very few have symptoms. They're sedated. They're being given pain medicine. 
They don't complain of chest pain. Very few of them have ECG changes because we don't do continuous monitoring. We just look at a solitary ECG that is subselected, often has nonspecific STT wave changes because non-surgical, non-cardiac surgical patients are an older group. So you can't identify them. So there are some people who would advocate getting troponin serially after surgery. And if there's a big rise, there could be one of two reasons. Either something that is going on like sepsis, which could cause a large rise, or ischemic heart disease. And trying eventually to figure out what needs to be done with those patients. So now again, the downside of doing that is we don't know for sure what proper therapy is. If you take a look at the literature, almost everything we do, do has not been, at least for everybody in surgery, worked out well, including aspirin in POISE-2, which wasn't a benefit for everybody. Now, interestingly, there's a sub-analysis that suggests the patients who were post-PCI that aspirin was a benefit, but, but we don't know quite what to do with these patients. So do you want to surveil and simply not know what it is you ought to do? Or I would argue in sophisticated centers need to slowly move into this area and begin to probe what are the best therapies going forward. So bottom line is some certain patients are going to need preoperative testing. We don't want to preop test everyone because it's no. going to lead to confusion. Postoperative, there are going to be subsets of patients that also need to be monitored, and it's not completely clear yet which patients are going to fall in which criteria, but hopefully over the next six months to six years, we'll have a better handle on that. I, I think it's going to take longer than that. I think that this is an area where we need additional research, but the good places that are starting now to have the tools ought to be the ones who implement that sort of stuff. Well, so that's been a very interesting uh, set of concepts for inpatient care. Over the course of this podcast, we've talked about the assay itself, which patients need to be admitted, when they're admitted, whether they need to be monitored or not, and then the very important perioperative care of these patients, which we've just been discussing. For our listeners, are there any last points you'd like to make, Dr. Jaffe, about troponins in their future? Well, we could talk about a lot of things in terms of critically ill patients or primary and secondary prevention, but I think one of the most important messages is that although we're talking about the in-hospital circumstance now, when these patients graduate from the in-hospital setting to the out-of-hospital setting, they're still at risk if they've had an elevated troponin. And often when they go home, they are out. the troponin is out of sight and out of mind. And it's terribly important that clinicians and internists follow up in intelligent ways to do just the due diligence of saying what underlying cardiovascular disease is there. If they do that, there's a chance of maybe markedly improving the long-term survival which is impaired in these individuals. Absolutely. The outpatient doctor uh, nurse practitioner, PA provider who's taking care of patients that have been hospitalized and have had troponins drawn in the emergency department elsewhere in their clinic need to understand this test 
just as much because especially in an era of short length of stays, patients are going to be following up with elevations in the troponins and understanding the risks to patients and the benefits of monitoring is going to be key to safely uh, caring for our patients, which is our ultimate goal in the practice of medicine. So thank you, Dr. Jaffe, for joining us today. It has been a very interesting conversation. I always learn something talking to you. Really? To, su <laughs> to surprise the both of us. Thank you for having me. And for our audience, thanks for uh, uh, joining us today for this third and final episode of Talking Troponins. Remember, physicians looking to claim CME credit for listening to the series can go to ce.mayo.edu slash troponinpc and register. For more podcasts like this one, go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Mayo Clinic Talks Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Jamie Newman.